everyone. So uh, thanks for joining the, the webinar today. So super excited to have uh, Pierre Pallier today from Notpla on board. But before I start to introducing our guests, uh, just briefly introducing myself. I'm uh, Max Lebeau, I'm CEO of Forward Pudding. And for the ones who, for the ones who don't know Forward Pudding, uh, we've been around for almost four years now. And uh, our role is basically to help um, making connections within the agri-food tech sector between corporates, food organizations, and the startups that are bringing uh, impactful innovations to, um, to the food industry and trying to help them to scale uh, via the, the, the PS of corporates. We also have developed a, a data platform that provides investors, accelerators, and corporates with uh, a global database of startups in the agri-food tech space and also trends and insights about you know, what's happening uh, in the industry. Um, so without further notice, uh, our guest today is Pierre Notpla. Super excited to have you on board because we, we give a lot of presentations about food tech, whether it is for clients or uh, in other circumstances. And every time we have to give examples of impactful startups and, and pretty much every time we quote uh, Notpla as one of the examples, uh, because it, I think to me is really what the essence of what food tech is all about. So Notpla, um, uh, basically their mission is to get rid of single-use plastic. Uh, they have developed this uh, innovative material. Uh, there is a blend of algae and plants uh, and also edible. Their first product is an actually an edible capsule for, for liquids. And um, so further, without the notice, Pierre, you could start by uh, giving us a bit of history. So telling us a, a bit about, about yourself, your background, and how did the whole Notla project uh, came together? Great. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to uh, to be contributing to the, the the food tech community, and I think that it's an exciting time for the food tech community. There's lots of challenges ahead, so um, innovators and and entrepreneurs have a lot of work. Um, so I'm I'm Pierre. Um, I'm uh, I'm French. And uh, uh, just for like a little bit of context, I, uh, I initially uh, studied mechanical engineering back in France. And then I worked as a packaging engineer for uh, a few years for L'Oreal, the cosmetics company. And uh, there I kind of like learned a lot of things about industrialization, but I also realized the scale at which we produce plastic and the speed at which those machines just kind of like fill shampoo bottles and like cream jars and so on. So it's kind of like a, a bit of a, like a realization that if we make it that fast, it ends up somewhere. And so after working a, a few years there, I decided to make a change. And that's when I came to the UK uh, to study a master's in innovation where uh, I met my co-founder, Rodrigo. Uh, his background is in architecture. So, um, so far, nothing related to seaweed or uh, chemistry or anything, but um, we basically uh, decided to work on uh, what essentially was a student project at, at that point, trying to come up with um, an alternative to the quintessential waste product, the single like use plastic bottle in a way that would feel like nature would have this as an existing uh, uh, like element. So the idea was to create a little bit like a, a man-made fruit um, that would be an example of how nature would try to bring you water or different types of, of, of liquids. And um, around that time, um, we kind of like did a lot of research around natural materials um, and we didn't really have a lab. So we just were experimenting in our kitchens and 
reading a lot of uh, old patents from the like the nine the the twenties from the food industry. We stumbled upon a lot of materials that are quite interesting in their properties, from uh, tapioca seeds to starches and cellulose and eventually we stumbled upon a lot of seaweed extracts that are used in the food industry as uh, thickeners and gelling agents and we kind of realized that um, they were working quite well for making small bubbles for example for making fake caviar um, and it's kind of magic you just combine those extracts from seaweed with some salt and you have like these kind of bubbles very small that you could produce. And we kind of like just spent a few weeks trying to make them as big as possible, um, containing water. And essentially at that point, we had an interesting prototype, but it was very loose. There was very uh, kind of like, uh, there was a lot of problems. It would break within five minutes and so on. But we made a video showing how you could basically make this a bit as a tutorial. Um, and the project wasn't really kind of like meant to go further than this but we we posted this online and um, following that that video there was a lot of kind of like other um, like videos trying to kind of like work around the the initial method trying to improve things eventually that video went viral and we kind of realized that people were really excited about this as an alternative to uh, to plastic and the first kind of like articles were written about this as packaging as really an alternative packaging so um, when we graduated, rather than going to find a job in a, like in a bigger company, we were like, okay, let's give it a shot, maybe just for six months, see what happens, but can we bring this from concept to, to kind of like having impact? Um, and uh, that's when we really kind of like jumped on this uh, uh, seriously. We started working with uh, a few chemists from Imperial College where we were studying and then like brought together a wider team of like engineers and designers and uh, business developers um, and worked on the material properties, the manufacturing technology to try to make this as well uh, more kind of like scalable. Um, and it took us a few years, but we kind of like managed to create a little bit more of a like solid solution that could really have an impact against plastic. Um, and, um, and I think that at that point we, we kind of like decided to focus on specific applications where our products are more suitable. Um, so one of the things that is quite exciting about Notpla, uh, the, which is also the name of, the, of our material, is as you said that it's made from natural materials. So it's renewables, uh, it's not using any fossil fuel or anything like this. Uh, and because it's natural and it's like plants and, and seaweed, it's actually edible, so you can literally eat the packaging and that's in a way the fastest way to make it disappear. Um, you can also throw it away and it's naturally biodegradable. Unlike uh, PLA or PHAs or other types of uh, bioplastics, you don't need industrial composting. So it means that wherever this packaging ends up, nature can deal with it. Uh, the idea is like if nature can, like if you can eat it, nature can eat it. Um, and uh, and so the response for, for for from the market was that uh, like there was a really good fit with instant consumption. So that's when we started to look at places where you use something within minutes uh, or even seconds, and where it doesn't make sense to use plastic that is virtually indestructible and is going to stay in the environment for a very long time. So that's when we started to do a lot of uh, running events like uh, like the London Marathon. We did a lot of festivals sampling and now a lot uh, on the takeaway side of things 
And so that's really now where we focus our, our, our attention, the on-the-go uh, consumption uh, markets where uh, a natural material has the best chance of replacing what currently is usually plastic or laminate. Um, and yeah, that's a bit about the story. Great, quite a journey. So how, how long did it take from the moment you start looking into the ID until the moment you had your first prototype? How long was that particular journey? So I think it was quite fast because we were um, like really uh, trying to piggyback on a lot of existing technologies. So the first, like the first membranes, the first prototypes, they were very uh, fragile. They were definitely more from the food world than from the packaging world, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, but we were able to replicate, yeah, as I said, like uh, the way you make fake caviar uh, with some seaweed extracts. Um, we were ordering a bunch of uh, raw ingredients from Alibaba and Amazon, mixing it in our, in our kitchen. So I think that um, it was definitely a very kind of hands-on um, uh, project to start with. And then obviously it, to make it into a packaging that is uh, robust, that is safe, that is hygienic, that like solves a real kind of like consumption problem. It then took a lot of work from chemists and chemical engineers and the, the different team members to improve this. So it's been really continuous improvement. But one of the, like, I think one of the things that worked quite well for us to get started is that we had um, like something quite visual that um, was also quite tangible. People, because they saw it, they kind of like uh, related to it. And so I think that, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a very kind of like uh, um, uh, hands-on project from the start. And it's allowed us to uh, kind of like convince people faster of the technology so that we can get to the really interesting thing, which is about like building, scaling up and making sure that we have the impact that we want to have. Great. And so you mentioned like the, the, the final product, the final material is 100% biodegradable. Um, edible means no waste, uh, no beans, no recycling, and uh, your first product was uh, the form of a, a little capsule. But you, I just wanted to come back on the on the, the material, the ingredients that you're using to get to that particular material. So you mentioned, like, you, you told me the other day that the the algae you're using can can grow up to three meters a day. Can you tell us a bit more about the particular uh, elements you're using for the for for Nofla? Yeah, so um, certainly seaweed is uh, is is a incredible material. We really think that it has a like a, a big role to play in uh, uh, sustainable packaging. Um, I think that um, there's there, there's many things that are quite uh, unbelievable about the about seaweed. It's a very ancient, in a way, kind of like organism uh, that is. Uh, uh, behaving in extraordinary ways. So first of all, as you said, it grows extremely fast. Some of the, like some seaweeds that we've uh, tried in the past, uh, they, they, they can grow up to a meter per day. So it's just like one of the fastest growing organism on the planet. Um, and what's really interesting as well is that it's a zero input uh, crop, if that makes sense. So you don't need fresh water, you don't need fertilizer, you don't need temperature control or any of the other things that are sometimes required in uh, agriculture and you don't use land. And one of the like, things that is uh, really important for sustainable packaging is uh, to kind of like take care of the ethical considerations of diverting 
the use of like land and agriculture from food to bio packaging. That's one of the big problems of PLA, for example. Yeah. And so um, seaweed in that sense has a, a really big opportunity to, uh, to provide that biomass without that, that issue. Um, it's vegan. There's lots of biomaterials that are uh, using um, like either gelatin or uh, milk proteins, but uh, seaweed is vegan. Um, and one of the things that is really interesting as well is that it's actually um, like helping the ocean to reduce acidity by circulating the nutrients and the, the carbon. It's a really great way to capture carbon. So actually, um, there's, there's more and more projects where they're looking at actually kind of like um, cultivating seaweed in like 3D farms in the ocean just for the carbon capture uh, element. And obviously, we are trying to develop more applications for those kind of like types of biomass to also have a like an end market to to try to accelerate the growth of this but it just wins on on all the aspects um and and one element that is maybe not so important for us right now but that needs to be uh taken into account as we scale up is that it's also available uh like all around the world and one of the things that we have done is test species from different parts of the world different oceans to make sure that when we are at scale and we are producing ohos in Australia, we're not shipping seaweed from France. Um, and, and, and it does work. Uh, there's lots of ways to balance the variations from species. So it's quite exciting in terms of, um, of raw material. Obviously, like any human activity, when it comes to extraction or uh, um, harvesting or um, like aquaculture, humans can always have a negative impact so that's why we also work really closely with the rest of the supply chain so that people are encouraged to have the the best behaviors and the best uh, like impact they can um, and i think that um, it's it's really important for any kind of like new material to make sure that we don't hide another problem a bit further down the chain we don't want to create the next ecological crisis so we, we really work to make sure that there's nothing that is not accounted for. Okay, so where do you currently harvest uh, the, the algaes? So currently we use mainly seaweed from France, not because I'm French, but because uh, they, we have a partner there who is uh, really kind of like having the best sustainability credentials. And we want to like reward those with our kind of like buying, small buying power for now but we want to work with the people who are like pushing as much as possible for the most responsible way to uh, like to process um, the, the seaweed. Um, but we've tested seaweed from all around the world. So um, there's, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of potential. Yeah. Great. Uh, talking about that, actually. Um, so first of all, the first question I had was uh, to come back on the product itself. We're talking about something edible. When you talk about something edible, you have to talk about chef life. So, what's the current chef life of of, of the packaging? And the yeah. second question is like, what other applications are you are you currently looking at? What other packaging formats are you are you exploring? Great. Um, so, absolutely. I think one of the the the, the big kind of like elements about um, our product is that we have the shelf life of a fruit more than the shelf life of an industrial container, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and actually one of the things that is quite interesting is that our material is naturally biodegradable um, and uh, typically it will break down into compost in like four to six weeks. So you can't really have something that is that biodegradable 
but that's going to be on the shelf for three years. Um, and so to solve this, first of all, we had to focus on applications where there is fast consumption. So again, the on-the-go market is great because you know that people are going to consume at that moment and uh, you, can, uh, like you can work around that. Um, and the second one uh, is related to the manufacturing. And so um, the material is one part of the technology, but the other part is the machines that we have developed that can manufacture uh, OHOs. And unlike traditional packaging, uh, plastic packaging technologies, they're actually much more compact. And the idea is to actually have a very small supply chain and production locally. So the idea is that you could literally produce uh, close to the point of consumption, like a hub model, uh, where you don't have to have one giant factory for an entire country or even a continent and you just ship things in trucks for months and months, but you can just produce locally fresh around the corner. Um, so the fact that we've made this machine small, uh, low energy uh, intensity and uh, like basically the scale of uh, like uh, a fridge, we can have this distributed model where we can produce locally uh, and have that product reach the, the market faster. Um, the shelf life really depends on what we put inside. Um, and it's quite interesting because a bit like uh, fruit, they, there's no two fruits that have exactly the same behavior because they have different requirements, they contain different, uh, different elements. So um, for us, it's, it's very similar. We have some products that have like a lot more stability. We've done, for example, ketchup and mayo sachets for the takeaway industry and usually they have like lower pH and they are more stable. Whereas we've been working with fresh uh, cold pressed juice and those will have literally a shelf life of like four days. So it really depends on what you're packaging and, um, and, and, and uh, the, the way we set up the shelf life is essentially looking at two things. The first one is microbiology. So when there is actually like, uh, like the, the starting point of growth of microorganism beyond the, the limits that are uh, like set by the, by the, the company that is uh, producing the content. Um, and the second one is organoleptic. So does it still feel like the product that uh, like the consumers like and recognize? Um, so we really work case by case with companies from uh, sources with like uh, Helmans uh, uh, from Unilever, where we would have like uh, teams really looking at each different source uh, to, as I mentioned before, for example, Tropicana with the cold pressed juice being a lot more kind of like uh, rigorous on, on, the, on that. Um, and then on the other products, so you're absolutely right. Um, we started with OHO, but actually we started developing other packaging solutions based on the same Siri technology because we saw that there was other ways we could like have an impact. So the, the second product is a coating. Uh, I have a, a, uh, an example here. So this is a, like a takeaway box that you would get your curry or your noodles uh, in. Uh, it's cardboard, but inside it's coated with a thin layer of our seaweed material to provide the, the water resistance and the grease proofing. Um, and typically this is done with plastic, whereas with seaweed you have something that is natural and biodegradable. Um, so that's something that we are currently uh, trialing with Just Eat in London restaurants. And the, the, the third product is essentially a transparent film, but for dry products. Um, so this is basically for uh, packaging either dry food or um, hardware components or electronics 
different things that are in flexible, transparent packaging and that don't really need to be in plastic. And that's something that is a little bit earlier stage, but we are quite excited to see um, how we're going to be able to bring this to the market. And that, that makes me jump on the question I, I, I just saw popping on the screen. Like, do you at the moment have any kind of limitations in terms of sizes for, the, for the, this packaging? So um, not really. Um, the way we, we produce the, the sachets is by extrusion. So you could make a very long tube, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not very practical. What we have found is that because we are all about on-the-go consumption, we tend to have small formats uh, because that's what people tend to consume on the go. Uh, but I think the, the biggest OHO we've made one summer for like a, a record was uh, two liters. So you could make it pretty big, but it wouldn't be very convenient. And for the, for the films or for the, the, the coating, uh, there's no limit. It's really like basically we, we, we are creating a roll of film that we can then transform into different size of, uh, of uh, uh, flexible bags. Right. And is it printable? Uh, did you have any, any requests from any customers in the past that were asking to, to yeah. print on, on the So absolutely. And like traditionally packaging is real estate for brands. So they are really keen to have uh, like uh, at, at the minimum um, some legal information and at the, like, uh, like very quickly they're interested in like branding. Um, so um, for the films and for the coating, it's relatively easy to use traditional printing techniques. For the OHO sachets, because the membrane uh, is quite specific and we've had to develop this technology and this machine from scratch. Currently, we don't have a, like an automatic printer at the end of our uh, machine, if that makes sense. We have developed the ink and we have that uh, working in the lab. So I think that we are probably like six months to a year away from having it implemented. Uh, but for now, it hasn't stopped us from continuing to produce for all of the different uh, applications. But obviously, it's going to be great once it's uh, fully integrated. Classic. And um, I remember like when I first uh, encountered your company, I think it was three or four years ago, um, you were pretty much at the, at the early days. And I'm sure you had the question so many times. But so the first thing that came to my mind was like, wow, that is great. But how, how scalable it is? And I'm sure you had tons of investors and corporates who ask you the the question since then, you know, have like 20 plus employees, you just raised finance again, uh, and you enable collaboration with companies like Unilever, Centauri, um, distributing, for example, this uh, who holds field with glucosate sports drinks for the London Marathon. Uh, you mentioned that partnership you have with Just Eat and Hellman uh, uh, Sources for the for the takeaway uh, industry. Uh, the, the, the question I have is like how um, if you could expand a bit more, particularly on these collaborations and, and, and more than anything, like what were sort of like the highs and the lows uh, when mm -hmm. it comes to collaborating with these big organizations? Um, and how do you envision these collaborations to, to evolve in the, in the future? Yeah, so I think um, definitely these collaborations are both important and uh, they're hard to kind of like set up correctly, if that makes sense. Uh, we've, we've talked with so many other companies and in the end, the, those few that you mentioned are some of the, the ones we are the proudest of, of having like managed to create those, uh, those relationships. I think that um, we, we really believe in starting small and not trying to solve everything at once. And that's definitely how uh, we approach things with, um, with, with Lucozade, for example. We literally started with um, like a small run where there were 200 runners 
there was no media there was no kind of like uh, like no pressure on seeing that the thing had to work and we just kind of tested maybe 50 or 100 ohos got some feedback from the runners and we just iterated and that 200 runner race turned into a thousand runners and then uh, 10,000 and then eventually to the London Marathon 46,000 runners so it's really kind of like taking this step-by-step approach and showing that like we can solve things as they as they come that is uh, that is working well for for everyone I think it's buying internally as well some uh, some validation um and um and and for us it turned into uh Lucozade, uh wanting to have ohos for all of their uh events now from now on uh in terms of sampling so um it really is uh taking it slowly at first um and 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 validating things rather than just trying to communicate about them um the case of justice is very interesting because it was literally uh, like um, like a conversation where it was about finding one restaurant to just try the first ketchup sachets and they were okay no problem we'll just do that and see what happens and i remember the first delivery uh like we we didn't have the proper kind of like courier in place and so on so the the first kind of like boxes arrived and all the ketchup had exploded and it was a huge mess and they, it was not a problem for them. They were like, yeah, we, we've learned that we shouldn't use that method. Let's try something else. And that summer we did, I don't know, like 5,000 sachets with that restaurant. And then it turned into an, a second phase where we had 10 restaurants and then another phase where we involved Unilever, where we had 60 restaurants. Um, so it really is about like that uh, progressive way of solving things, knowing that there will be unknowns when we scale up but we've proven that we have a track record of working these um, as we go. And, um, and, and now we have like a lot more uh, companies reaching out and usually we have a stage approach in terms of like structuring how we test things with their products before jumping into uh, like a, a consumer test and then maybe a larger uh, trial. So that helps them to understand what are the expectations, how we are going to uh, frame it before we uh, before we kind of like have the the big rollout, if that makes sense. And, um, and, and I mean, have you seen like some sort of like if we exclude the past uh, three months, uh, I'd say the past year, have, have you seen some, some kind of like tick in uh, in a demand and interest from from these big organizations? I think what's super interesting is that even with the what ha- what's happened in the last three months, um, like everyone has made it a priority on their agenda to deliver on plastic reduction or on uh, like climate change. Um, I think that it's gone from being the thing that we shove in the kind of like report at the end of the year to really being understanding that consumers will just go some other way if they don't find something that aligns with their values. And so it's been really interesting for us to see uh, that commitment growing over the years. When we started, it was pre-David Attenborough, uh, Blue, Pl- Blue Planet 2 kind of like emotional yeah. uh, connection with the oceans. Um, and it was a completely different world. People were a lot more cynical and didn't care about like the, the impact of their packaging. Now I think that um, like on the other side, yes, it's a corporation, but there's humans who also don't want to feel shitty about their work and what they are kind of like putting on the market. So I think that it goes a long way of like having that uh, 
that that personal rapport with the with the problem with everyone yeah and um well now let's talk about what happened in the past uh, in the past three months i think we can't we can't avoid that um but um, basically I, I see a lot of like single-use plastic resurging uh at the moment for like health safety health and safety reasons um, would you say that Notplow was sort of like a, a COVID-proof business before the whole pandemic started and how, how did it affect you? So I think like everyone, we, uh, the, there's been some disruption and we certainly have uh, like uh, a part of our activity that is linked with events. And as long as people can't meet in large, large groups, these events will be postponed. So um, I think that it's going to take a, a few months before we, uh, we, we are uh, seeing those events restarting. Um, I think that purely from like a, like a R&D perspective, obviously it's harder to work with um, international partners. Luckily, we are doing a lot of work with like industrial partners in uh, the UK. So that helps a lot as well with trials continuing, with being able to like uh, have a little bit more proximity and like understanding of how to uh, work together. Whereas um, like trials with the US or with um, Southeast Asia are a lot more kind of like tricky at the moment. So there is a sense that like uh, geography matters again. Does that make sense? Um, and then, yeah, for us, uh, like obviously production is stopped until uh, like uh, some of these events restart. Uh, we have uh, used that time to do a lot of R&D and to move into our new offices, which is quite exciting. We've been here for two weeks and it's a much larger uh, like facility, so that's great. Um, we, we got quite lucky that uh, in, in terms of timing that we, we fundraised in uh, December. Um, so we, we don't have the, like, the, the stress of uh, like the cash flow for these months that commercial activity is still low and we have the, the ability to um, to get through and, and to really kind of like restart things properly uh, in the coming months. So um, for us, we are in a, like in a way in a better position than some of the people who were actually just starting to fundraise. Um, there is a lot of uncertainty in startups. So I think that uh, it's been uh, probably like on, on, on uh, like the nerves of a lot of, uh, of founders. But for us, uh, we've, we've kind of like uh, tried to uh, open our eyes to see what is going to be the most important uh, in the coming months and, and, and year and uh, to try to accelerate that as much as we can while we have time for the chemists and the engineers and the designers to, to work. Fantastic. And um, in this new kind of like normal, uh, this new situation with the COVID pandemic, like what would you say is the biggest challenge of the food tech sector and the, and the food industry at the moment? Mm. I think what's, what's going to be um, quite interesting is, uh, as you said, like to, to predict which behaviors are going to quickly return to some of the previous behaviors that we had and which ones are going to stick with the, the kind of like crisis mode that we're in and trying to uh, have a solution for almost for both, but like being, being ready to see some things stay like this whereas some others are gonna quickly kind of like uh, return to what we knew before and i think that um uh for for like the the food tech community and in general i think for like startups 
um, we are the people who are the most um, kind of like able to adapt quickly and to be resilient about like changing um, like context. So I'm not too afraid that people are going to quickly pivot to pick up an opportunity or uh, wait for the behavior that they think is going to come back to come back. Um, I think that there's a lot more traditional businesses that are going to be impacted long term that aren't going to have that that mentality and that ability to um, to to reinvent themselves. Um, but in a way, I think that. Um, maybe it's just giving an opportunity as well for for some of these like better solutions more sustainable solutions to take a little bit more of the grip on on the market and i think that um what still feels uh like very important in all the discussions that i have with the bigger partners is the urgency of acting on on uh, on like climate change and on on plastic pollution because i think that people are realizing that uh, if we mistreat nature, uh, we kind of like get hit, uh, and and we can't really afford to continue disregarding uh, the the kind of consequences that that this could have. So I think that I'm really hopeful that this is going to change long term, uh, like the the way people behave and consume, and what a be what better way than food uh, for showing that change. And, and aside from um, the alternative packaging sector, like what, what are the biggest trends that you see shaping up for the next two, three years in the, in the whole food tech sector, according to you? I think one of the things that is quite interesting that uh, we're seeing, uh, especially we have a lot of requests from cosmetics company uh, around uh, like waterless or reduced water content uh, solutions. And I think uh, with the probable boom of e-commerce, uh, related with the with COVID, uh, it's going to be really interesting to try to transport things that are more concentrated. And I think that um, there's a lot of formats of packaging to invent or reinvent. I think that uh, that's that's one area where uh, it's quite exciting. Um, and especially, I think in terms of sustainability, like it's uh, high water content uh, solutions or formulations are typically harder to protect. So I think that it's also going to lift a lot of the requirements on uh, packaging because we can deal with products that are drier and therefore can uh, afford to be paired with a more sustainable solution. So I think that's quite exciting. Um, and I think that um, uh, the other thing that is quite interesting is that um, although the, the plastics lobby is working really hard to try to uh, like make everyone um, fearing everything that is not wrapped in plastic. There's some really great science showing that actually uh, the virus uh, tends to, to live much longer on plastic than other materials, especially natural materials. So it's quite interesting to see that actually um, we have, uh, we've, had, we, we've had conversations with people who reached out because they wanted to stop using plastic because of the fact that it's a, it's a very stable surface for, for COVID. So, is that going to be a, a major push against plastic? I don't know, but it's interesting to, to hear from the market. Let's see. And uh, it makes a great transition because I'm, I'm looking at, we have many, many questions actually from the audience right now. And uh, uh, one of them, you mentioned the cosmetics uh, sector and you, you have a background working in L'Oreal before. Um, um, 
had you ever looked at uh, going outside food and looking into cos encapsulating cosmetics, for example, like shampoos? Yeah, so we're, we're, we're currently doing some work with a few selected uh, partners on cosmetics. Um, and uh, I think there's some quite exciting things. In the past, we've looked at amenities for hotels and, and uh, that was quite exciting because, again, this is the kind of thing that you know is going to be used within a day. Um, so it doesn't make sense to use plastic. Um, in general, cosmetics is, is, a, is inter an interesting challenge because you remove the need for edibility. So there's a little bit more kind of like range of uh, like uh, products you could be using for the packaging. But at the same time, the formulations themselves are a little bit harsher than food. Um, so uh, it requires a bit of work, but it's definitely an exciting area. Great. And on, on the same topic, just to come back on food, um, basically, you, you mentioned it's edible, right? So how do you actually keep the, the surface and the bubble clean uh, and safe to heat without a packaging? Yeah, for sure. Um, so again, we don't distribute our products uh, like on the shelf in a supermarket. Uh, it's not a, a retailable product. So we really look at uh, applications that are quite specific. Um, so for example, um, the work that we do with ketchup and mayo sachets for the takeaway. Uh, this is actually placed directly inside of like uh, your food order, maybe with your fries or uh, your burger in a clamshell. And it's basically handled, handled like food uh, by the, the, the restaurants, uh, just the same way your, 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 the bun for your burger or your fries are. Um, so uh, that's, that's the kind of like uh, way we, we distribute our products. Um, in terms of um, hygiene, one of the things that is interesting is that our products are much fresher than the typical kind of like sauce sachet that you might uh, find in your takeaway. Uh, they haven't been in like multiple warehouses and trucks and being unloaded and offloaded and so on for, for months. So actually, we tend to have a, a, a lot cleaner uh, like, uh, like environment because the, sh the, the the chain is much shorter, um, and that's really how we are uh, like seeing this to 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 develop. Obviously, uh, like there is a lot of uh, requirements around food, so we've worked really hard with um, all our partners, the like food safety teams of PepsiCo and Unilever and Glucosaid and all these guys, and you can, you can believe me that uh, they are very strict to uh, to basically like. Uh, comply with any of their requirements, which are usually going much further than the, the legal requirements. Um, so um, that's, that's something that we've done with all our partners. Um, and we, we test uh, with microbiology, so we have results from independent labs to, to validate all of that. And um, someone is asking about um, two other markets, potentially, uh, one is the spirits market, uh, if you have that request for like hardcore companies, for example, and the other one is the pharma industry. Yeah, so the alcohol uh, market is actually quite interesting. We've done quite a bit on that. And actually last October, we had a, like a funny uh, experience because we've been doing cocktails, uh, especially for festivals for the past probably couple of years. Uh, but um, although it was quite successful, it never really kind of like particularly went viral. But uh, last October, we did uh, an activation with the Glenlivet, which is a whiskey brand from uh, Pernod Ricard uh, Group. 
and um, that was for the London Cocktail Festival. And uh, the video uh, that they made uh, went completely viral. I remember it was a weekend and like, I just kept on seeing like messages from different people that had seen this in lots of different places. And I just didn't understand how everything had just kind of like exploded um, so quickly. So I think in the end, they said that like that video and like the like media articles that, that like took off after that reached 1.8 billion screens, which I still find uh, unbelievable. Um, it went on like the news shows in the US. So it was on like Stephen Colbert and Trevor Noah Daily Show and uh, Ellen Show. And it was just kind of like completely over the top for a relatively small um, activation that we had done in London. And I think what was quite exciting is that people were finding it completely crazy that you could drink whiskey that way because whiskey is kind of like a classic drink that you're supposed to sip. So I think there was a lot of outrage that you would pop a capsule of, uh, of whiskey uh, in your mouth, but it worked really well. The, the brand was um, like super happy because they've never had that amount of exposure. And um, so um, it really showed like the, the potential. And so um, now there's, there's a lot of uh, like follow-up uh, opportunities that we are looking at with alcohol. Um, alcohol is a little bit tricky um, um, in terms of formulation. There's a little bit of work to make it actually like nicer to, to eat and to pop in mouth because it changes a little bit the, the texture of the membrane but that's what we, like we, we are doing. So uh, definitely a possibility. And if you have some ideas of places where you would love to have uh, capsules of cocktails, uh, don't hesitate to, to reach out. I think about, I'll think about it. I thought as well about uh, like the gastronomic sector as more like a marketing platform, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And I think in a way, like at the moment, we are still uh, relatively early stage in the sense that <clears throat> for the past year, We've had like a couple of machines which are still prototypes. Now we are to the stage where we are able to bring more machines, build more machines, have a, a slightly bigger manufacturing capacity. And like uh, this is increasing, but we're still in the early phase of, of, of all of this. So I think that once we have uh, matured the technology, have several hubs in lots of different uh, places, uh, there's going to be probably a lot more opportunities to uh, like to branch out to different applications. Um, right now we have this big focus on, on uh, sauce sachets uh, for the takeaway industry and for like uh, pre-packaged uh, salads and meals in, uh, in uh, supermarkets because that's a place where um, there is still a lot of activity even during COVID uh, and where we can replace actively plastic. So that's, that's a starting point, but um, in a way the technology is much broader than this. Fantastic. Um, I'm just going through the, through the questions right now. I think a lot of them we kind of like uh, went through already. I have a very uh, pragmatic one here from, from Tacey who's asking, uh, what's the load bearing capacity of the, of the capsule itself before it breaks? So um, I'm not going to have a Newton value to, <laughs> to give you live, <clears throat> but um, it's, it's essentially within the world of... Uh, fruits and vegetables. So I think it probably is like uh, as resistant as uh, like uh, a strawberry or something like this. It's not very good top loading. So usually when we, 
we put them in uh, like the secondary kind of like uh, trays, delivery trays that, that we use, we probably put only 200, 300 units at once. Um, and <clears throat> it's definitely soft. Um, actually, one of the things that we find out, found out in the first trial we did with just it, we had um, like um, a formula that went with the, the, the sachets. And um, people were like, it's quite easy to open by just tearing a corner. And actually, it's one of the things that consumers get really annoyed about, like plastic sachets, because they are so hard to, to open, especially if you have slightly greasy fingers and so on. So ours is a lot more like, uh, like opening a, like a clementine or an orange than about like this plastic thing that you have to tear. And so as a result, we were completely shocked that 92% of people found it easier or as easy to open as a, as a plastic sachet. So that was quite a like uh, non-planned added value, if that makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, they are yeah. essentially resistant like a fruit. And, and about the this just the partnership in particular, like how did you go about capturing like customer feedback? Did, did, did they help you on that? Yeah. So one of the great thing about Justit is that it's a digital platform. So there's a lot of things that you can do that you can't do with like physical retail. Um, so you can follow up with emails, you can ask uh, like customers, uh, specifically um, the ones that maybe are um, like returning customers to have their opinion uh, rather than like someone who just ordered once. So there's a lot more you can do about trying to feedback some of the information to iterate, to improve the product. Um, so definitely quite interesting. Okay. And someone is asking about your, the your competitive landscape, like who are your competitors currently? Yeah. Do do Does anyone out there that is exactly the same thing as you do at the moment? So <clears throat> I would say that um, currently no one has uh, like an exact competing product, if that makes sense, uh, in terms of technology. And I saw someone asking, <clears throat> sorry, about like um, IP and uh, like uh, protection we have obviously patents and copyrights and uh, like all the, the due uh, protections in place. Uh, but I think that, yeah, in terms of like slightly wider competition, there is definitely a, like a very active landscape of companies, startups uh, mainly, that are bringing some new exciting to the market. So I think it's literally every month there is someone who is creating some new packaging with some interesting biomass that you probably would have never thought could make it into packaging from uh, milk proteins to cacti to seashell to sand. There's, there's just so many things that can be used for packaging. So it's quite exciting. Um, as I said, we, we think that our solution works for very specific applications. So we don't claim to replace all the plastic in the world. And we think that uh, actually we're going to need a wide range of solutions because we have a wide range of applications. Uh, again, going, coming back to the analogy of the fruits, but essentially uh, there's no two fruits that are similar because they have their own requirements. So we want to provide a few different fruits and some other companies will provide others, if that makes sense. Um, and I think that um, we really uh, also want to work in conjunction with reusables whenever they are uh, working um, and we want disposables to be only a solution when we know that reusable aren't, aren't taking off or that 
they're not going to have the impact that is that is required. So um, it's really all about finding a systemic solution that is very kind of like in the details rather than like just a one material replaces all plastic. Um, and and personally, I'm super excited about um, all these other startups that are yeah using uh, from like. Uh, beeswax to uh, mushrooms to all sorts of like really interesting materials and i think that um, each one of them have their particular set of uh, like advantages and drawbacks and if everyone sticks to what works for that material then we're not gonna like we're gonna maximize impact if that makes sense yeah yeah absolutely actually there's someone asking about uh, uh, a use case we've seen quite a lot, uh, which is straws. So, have you have you ever considered turning using the material to make straws, for example? Yeah. So, I think that uh, definitely uh, straws are uh, a big problem. I think it's been super interesting to see that product completely disrupted uh, in a matter of, of years. Um, currently, we don't think that we have uh, like the the reasons to focus on that because other companies are doing some great things um, typically our products are flexible um, and we kind of focus on like the barrier properties for flexibles for now um, so i'm not saying that in the future we might not have some like rigid materials for cutleries or uh, cups or so on but i think that we we definitely have a focus in in flexibles for now um, and there are like uh, other companies looking at um, seaweed extracts or other kind of like um, uh, plants to, to make straws. So that's quite exciting to see some alternatives on that front as well. Fantastic. Um, and someone is asking, so like a, a bigger, like long-term question, like where, where do you see the company in, in five years? Do you think you will still remain independent? What's your sort of like main goal in the, in the next five years? Yeah. Um, so first of all, we are super lucky to have been backed by first of all in the like in our first fundraise people so um, we failed to raise from uh, angels and funds in the first like when we when we first fundraised um, and we were going to quit but we decided to give it a last chance a last push and go for equity crowdfunding um, and that turned out to work really really well and we like are so grateful for the 900 people who who helped us raise uh, 850,000 pounds back in 2017. Um, so it's quite exciting to ha to have the the support of like lots of people all around, all around the world. Um, and then after that, we've we've uh, been able to uh, continue financing the the growth of the company with a, a really great team of um, impact investors. Uh, we have Sky Ocean Ventures. Uh, recently, we've raised. Uh, another round with uh, Lupa Systems and Astanor, Torch Capital, Dune Foundation. So um, like funds that really have uh, done a lot in investing in, in sustainability. And we think that um, it gives a lot of hope for um, like new so emerging solutions to really reach scale with the power of uh, like VC funding, um, um, but keep uh, really sharp focus on, on sustainability. For us, NotPla, um, we, like, as you said at the beginning, our mission is to make packaging disappear. We want, that, we want packaging that doesn't stay around, but that just kind of like does its mission and then kind of like, uh, like goes back to nature. 
Um, and I think that um, we usually say that our ambition is to become the tetra pack of sustainable packaging. So um, in that sense, we want to have a, a wide portfolio of different solutions so that companies can basically find the replacement for whatever plastic packaging they have within our portfolio. Um, so the goal for us is to continue to bring more solutions, industrialize them and make sure that they work and that they have the impact that we want them to have so that, yeah, companies can basically say, okay, let's get rid of all the plastic that I don't need. Um, and, and we want to be the partner to help them do that. Great. And I got someone asking about where, where did you currently manufacture? And you mentioned before that you can also provide companies or events organizer with the actual machinery to create the, the who holes. That whole sort of like manufacturing and appliance kind of element, how, how important is it within, within your business model? How do you see it? See yeah, so it's definitely uh, interesting because we, we do uh, like basically just like under, under my desk that we have in, in, on the ground floor, we have the, the, the production unit. Um, so we are able to produce um, like as a service and it's much easier to start with than having to bring our machines to every new uh, client that we might have. Uh, it just helps a lot um, to get things off the ground. And it helps us to improve the technology by practicing and, and, and learning about like the reality of, of production. But long-term, uh, you're right, our goal is really to lease the machines and sell the cartridges of materials that go into these machines so that people can actually package their own products uh, directly on site, the same way they would package them by having a, like, a plastic packaging machine and plastic we want to be able to provide the material and the enabling equip equipment as a lease because uh, we also believe that it's a great way to create a circular economy. If the incentive uh, of making those machines l last longer rests on us, it's much better for, for a circular economy. So leasing model seems to be the, the, the best way for us to, uh, to implement that. But that's, yeah, that's the way we, we see uh, is working for the other products the coating and the films it might be a little bit different because in that sense uh, we are using a lot more with existing machinery so we don't really need to lease new machines we are trying to use existing machinery but our materials but with our our materials so in that sense it's very straightforward as a like packaging material provider we basically just sell materials to these companies great so I'm just being uh, mindful of time. We, I just have one last question for you to, to wrap up the session. Uh, was super insightful. Thank you very much. Um, do you have one piece of like practical advice that you want to give to any sort of like entrepreneur or there who is just starting their their journey? And what was your your biggest learning as a as a food tech founder? Um. Yeah, I think that. Um, it's really like as much as possible trying things and like getting validation or not about like that test from the market is, is really important. And sometimes you can spend a long time without having those kind of like touch points, just checking that things work. So I think that uh, like trying to have those, those uh, cycles as quickly as possible is really important. And especially in the early days, uh, it might, might feel a little bit kind of like, uh, underdeveloped to start showing it to people or pitching it or trying to kind of like 
have some feedback from a, a real like client, but it's so valuable. So definitely um, doing a lot of that. Um, and um, I think that, uh, yeah, like the, the, the time is, uh, is, is really interesting because so many things are changing. I think that um, when we started, there was um, like a lot less of a, um, of like uh, investor landscape specifically backing uh, like innovative food and sustainability. So I think that uh, now it's, it's very exciting because you actually have a box where you fit. You don't have to kind of like explain that you're a little bit this, a little bit that. Um, so I think that it's really exciting. And um, I think that maybe, yeah, like the thing I wish we would have like done is maybe kind of like uh, take more risk and bet on ourselves uh, in a bigger way early on to just try to kind of like get things started rather than just kind of like working on the plan for a very long time before you actually kind of like give it a go. So, but at the same time, you can't rewrite history. And I think that we've learned so much in the way we've kind of like developed this. So um, there's probably nothing to, to change really. Wow. And I, and I think you're in a, in a pretty good place. Pierre, uh, we're just on time. Thanks a lot for, for today. I think it was really, really insightful. Uh, and thanks, uh, thanks everyone for joining. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, You're keep welcome. in touch. Thank Bye. you, Pierre. Bye, everyone. Mm -hmm.